This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, this is Joshua Lewis of The Remnant Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We've got an exciting episode about tongues with Dr. Sam Storms. He is on the other line. Very, very excited to get into this topic. Uh, Sam Storms knows so much about tongues. He literally wrote the book on it. Uh, We're excited uh, to talk to him about that today, his book and some of the upcoming events that he's got going. Before we get into that, Michael, how are you doing? Uh, Fantastic. It's been a got to go preach at a uh, youth camp this last Saturday. Youth camp? Is that that normal for you? No, actually, no. I've I've done it twice or last last two years in a row. But it was, I, I mean, to me, it like reminds me of my old young life days. It was just, yeah, yeah. It was so much fun. I think Back they had kids. ten kids uh, commit to Christ or rededicate. I, I know some of them were brand new believers, and three kids get baptized for the first time. So, uh, pretty cool. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, excited to have Dr. Sam Storms on the program today. If you are not familiar, we were going to give uh, Dr. Sam's a moment to introduce himself and his ministry. Uh, Dr. Storms, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I was born and raised in Oklahoma. I've lived in Texas, Missouri, Illinois. Uh, we came back to Oklahoma City in 2008. So I've been here at Bridgeway Church, senior pastor here for finishing my 11th year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to the University of Oklahoma. Uh, for all you Texas fans down wherever you may be, just deal with it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, then I got my PhD at the University of Texas at Dallas. So I do. I'm a sooner with a, a, a degree from the University of Texas system. That's. I know that feels like a contradiction, but what can I say? I'm surprised they accepted uh, you at DTS. Did you say UT in Dallas. You, yeah, you ever, UT Dallas. Okay, yeah. that's right down the street from where I grew up, literally. Oh, okay. Very good. Yeah, so I graduated there. I pastored churches in Dallas, Oklahoma. Then I was in Kansas City for seven years. Uh, taught theology at Wheaton College for four years. Uh, spent four years basically in the air, traveling all over the country and the world, speaking, writing books, and then settled down here in Oklahoma City, plan on staying here. Lord willing, till the till I die or the Lord returns, whichever comes first. Praise God. That's that sounds exciting. Tell us a little about your conference that's coming up. Yeah, we're excited about it. Um, this is our second international conference. It's called Convergence. Uh, the first one was in uh, 2017. Uh, it was an incredibly successful time. We just loved it. We did a uh, we did a, a smaller seminar type conference in the, uh, last summer and focused just on the New Testament gift of prophecy. It's a very hands-on, practical training type of seminar. Um, we call it Convergence Equip. So this September, the 26th through the 28th, is our uh, second national conference. Uh, we're expecting around 2,000 people to come. That's capacity for the venue that we have. Um, it is. Uh, we're excited about it. Uh, people can find out about it just by going to convergenceconference.org. Uh, or if they go to my website, samstorms.com, there's a link that they can go directly to it. 
Um, got a great lineup of speakers. Um, not in addition to me, I'm not one of the great ones. I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm just there. You it's know, your I'm conference. That was so. a good humble yeah. catch. That was good. <laughs> yeah. um, Jack Deere is coming back and bringing a couple of his friends. Uh, uh, yours truly included. There you go. And um, Andrew Wilson, uh, who's one of my favorite speakers, a brilliant, brilliant guy from England. Uh, he's coming back. Matt Chandler will be there. Uh, Michael Brown, uh, who's, gosh, he's a, I don't know what you call him, a Renaissance man. He's an, an expert in everything, politics to culture to theology to apologetics, you name it. Um, and then also this year, Christine Kane is joining us. So she's quite the controversial figure, but uh, she's become a good friend, and I'm excited to have her here. It's going to be a great three days. Hope that people can come. In fact, um, the early bird discount ends this coming Saturday. Oh, no so way. So it'll be good, good for people to register as quickly as possible in the next few days to get that early bird discount. Excellent. So we'll put a link of that in the description after this video is published, uh, and we will play the video. I'll probably, we'll probably, since we did a pretty fair introduction and people are still coming on live, we'll we'll play that video probably at the end so people can kind of remember sure. to uh, jump on and register at the website. But but like yeah. he had said... Another quick word about the conference. Um a lot of conferences that I go to, that you guys probably do too, it's just all speaking. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not doing that. We're spending an extended amount of time in worship. And also we've uh, set aside multiple sessions of extended prayer ministry. So it's not just talking about spiritual gifts. In fact, the focus of the conference is on healing. Mm-hmm. It's called the God who heals. Um, and we will devote considerable amount of time to praying for the sick, uh, operating in the gifts, and hopefully the Lord will bless us with his power and his presence. So uh, it's a really uh, very much a hands-on uh, experiential type of event, not just people listening to us talk. So that's important for people to know. Well, that's exciting. And for those of you who are, who are watching and you might not be familiar with some of those speakers, uh, you can check out, we, we actually linked them up already in the video description of some of those people we've already had on. We've had Matt Chandler, uh, Dr. Michael Brown, and Jack Deere just came on recently. Uh, they talked about Gifts of the Spirit with Matt Chandler. We did uh, kind of a government theology with Michael Brown. And then we also talked about uh, filling, of the uh, filling of the Spirit and the Baptism of the Spirit with Jack Deere. So fun episodes all linked up there in the bottom. Uh, so before we jump into the topic, we have a couple of questions from our audience that's already been asked. Uh, for those of you who are watching uh, online right now, we have a phone number for you to call and it is right here. So if you call us at 214-233-6292, we will take your calls live and toss them over to Dr. Storms for uh, Q&A. So before we jump into that, I'd like to ask some of the questions that our viewers asked on uh, the Facebook. Uh, we have a, a question uh, from uh, Dwayne Leroy Duff. He asked the question, and I'm going to summarize it because it's rather lengthy. He says something to the effect of, you know, he is experiencing or hearing of these churches that are hiding tongues uh, from their main service on Sunday and kind of putting it into this back room uh, uh, where Christians hang out, uh, but not where unbelievers or new church members or new, new church attendees uh, might encounter it. What would you say of the gift of tongues and how should it be operated in the church body? Well, I think I, can understand, I understand the motivation for that and I can appreciate it because I do believe that Paul is pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 14 that when you are gathered as a corporate assembly, the purpose of which he talks about, he uses the language of edification, instruction, and learning, uh, Paul says that what goes on has to be intelligible. 
Mm-hmm. Unintelligibility does not uh, instruct or encourage or teach anyone. And so he calls for the presence of interpretation of tongues in the absence of which he said, don't do it in the, in the public assembly. Uh, there's another reason also toward the end of the chapter. He says, if you have unbelievers who come to your assembly and all of you are speaking almost simultaneously in uninterpreted tongues, their likely conclusion is you're nuts. You know, what, what's going on? I, I can't gain any anything of any benefit from this. So Paul is very jealous to guard the purpose of the corporate gathering when it is designed to instruct and encourage other believers. So that's why he calls for interpretation. Now, the question obviously that that the individual is asking, it seems to me is, are there circumstances or situations where uninterpreted tongues can uh, be exercised? And I think the answer to that is yes. If, if you have a, like you said, in the back room, or you have a maybe a home gathering where you know everybody present, and it's not one that is designed to invite in unbelievers, and it's primarily for prayer and worship uh, and interceding for one another, I think that uh, it's perfectly appropriate for tongues to be used in that kind of a context. So I, I don't think that kind of venue is violating 1 Corinthians 14, because we have to, we have to ascertain what is the purpose for the guidelines that Paul gives us in that chapter. So, for example, at Bridgeway, my own church, um, so far in my time uh, as senior pastor, we've never had anybody speak in tongues on a Sunday morning in the context of the corporate gathering. Uh, It's always occurred in small groups. Now, when we pray for people after the service, we have a, a time for healing prayer after every service. Oftentimes, I'll pray in tongues over an individual. I'll always ask them permission first if I don't know them. Uh, never had anybody say, no, I don't want you to do that. That terrifies me. Um, so it's it's always been something that they have welcomed. But um, I understand the reason, you know, you kind of said to kind of hide it away. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I don't want to hide it away. I'm not embarrassed by it at all. It's a beautiful gift from God. But I do think we need to, to be, uh, we need to honor Paul's guidelines and instruction. Unfortunately, Probably some of the motivation for this uh, man making this decision is that he's been in meetings where uh, there was just uh, tongue speaking on the part of numerous individuals or singing in tongues in the presence of unbelievers in the course of a service designed to instruct and edify people. And it's very uncomfortable. It makes people feel really weird. And uh, it's maybe it's been a little bit embarrassing for him. So I can understand the reason behind the his decision to do that. And I have no problem with that. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if maybe part of his motivation in asking that is also because of what I think is often a misunderstood passage in 1 Corinthians 14, where it says that where it says tongues are a sign for the unbeliever. And then it quotes that passage, I think out of Isaiah, um, yep. you know what it is, by men of strange tongues, I'll speak to these Isaiah people. Isaiah 28, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and if I'm not mistaken, that's actually not a good sign. It's actually a sign of judgment, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, I think people have really misunderstood what Paul is doing there. Um, some have read that, as you just indicated, as if Paul is telling us this is the primary purpose of tongues, namely to give a sign to unbelievers of God's judgment on them. And that is not what he's saying. And what Paul is saying there is that when you speak in tongues in the presence of unbelievers, you're giving a negative sign of God's judgment that you don't want to give them. 
they haven't reached the point of unbelief or hard-heartedness where they deserve that. Uh, the passage in the Old Testament from Isaiah, which also is citing Deuteronomy, was basically when God was bringing judgment against his people, he brought upon them a foreign uh, nation that spoke a language they couldn't understand. That was an indication of his displeasure. Mm. Why would you want to do that in the local church today? Why? You want unbelievers to come in. You want them to feel welcomed. You want them to feel loved. You want them to uh, be encouraged by the intelligibility of what you're saying. So what was happening in Corinth is that they were, again, utilizing uninterpreted tongues in the presence of unbelievers. Paul's saying, no, that's that you're giving them a sign that you don't want to give. It's a negative sign of judgment. That's not what you want to do. You want, rather, he goes on to say, to exercise the gift of prophecy because that will be an indication to them that God is truly among you, that his power and his presence are with you. So I think, um, uh, you know, this, that, the, the other view is the one I was taught in seminary, that tongues were uh, a negative sign of judgment for unbelievers, indicating God's um, impending rejection of them because they rejected the Messiah. Mm. That, and, and Paul's saying, you don't want to do that. <laughs> That's yeah. not, not So he's talking about an abuse of tongues there, not the primary use of it. And that's that. This is a really good point to transition into the primary use of tongues. What is what is the primary use of tongues? We see in in Acts chapter two, these were known languages that the that the people of the surrounding uh, uh, countrysides had had known, and they could hear them speaking in their own languages. Uh, is the miracle? You know, I say so. So, what's what's the primary gift? Is it that? Is it praying in the spirit? What is the primary use of tongues? Yeah, and sure. is uh, Acts two the same as the same gift as what you see in uh, Corinthians fourteen? Yeah, so right. kind of a, uh, it is. That probably is the single most controversial and important question. Yeah, because people who are cessationists who believe that the gift of tongues has ceased or been withdrawn by God insist typically I, I haven't met yet met one yet who, who didn't believe this they insist that acts 2 is the pattern for tongues to which every other instance must conform mm-hmm. and therefore since and I acknowledge acts chapter 2 undeniably the uh, disciples who were untrained in these languages were speaking in other dialects that were represented by people who were in Jerusalem for Passover and that's why they were baffled. They said, how is it that these unlearned Galileans are speaking in our own language? Um, they weren't evangelizing those people because it says they were worshiping God. They were declaring the mighty works of God. But there's no reason to believe, no reason to just simply assume that what happened in Acts 2 is the paradigm or the pattern into which all other instances of tongues must be forced. And the reason for that is because the situation of Acts 2 isn't repeated anywhere else. Acts chapter 10, um, the only people present when Cornelius and his Gentile followers begin speaking in tongues are Jewish believers, are Christians, Peter and, and his uh, his following. Acts chapter 19, uh, when the disciples of John speak in tongues, uh, the only person present there that we know of, uh, for certain was Paul and then probably his traveling companions. Uh, so there were no unbelievers present to hear those who were speaking in this, in this gift. And then when you come to 1 Corinthians, uh, it's very important. 1 Corinthians 12, twice Paul talks about various kinds of tongues. Uh, one translator renders it a variety of species of tongues. Uh, in other words, there may, there may be human languages you've never studied before. 
there may be angelic dialects that you're empowered by the Spirit to speak, or more likely, the Spirit gives you what I call a language from heaven. He specially crafts or fashions a particular linguistic expression for each individual to whom he gives the gift. And then when we come to 1 Corinthians 14, I would just encourage people, open your Bibles and read verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 14 very, very closely, where Paul says, I've got it right in front of me, so let me just make sure I get it correctly. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Now, that immediately tells me that the tongues that Paul has in mind, the, the species of tongue that he's talking about, is not a known human language spoken somewhere in the earth. Because he couldn't say that when you speak in that tongue, you're not speaking to men. But if it's a known human language, that's precisely what you're doing. That's mm -hmm. what language is. It's speaking to other people. He says, no, you're speaking to God because no one understands him. But think about it for a moment. Um, some, uh, Corinth was a multilingual port city, people coming in and out all the time from various parts of the ancient world. Anytime somebody spoke in a tongue, uh, Paul would say, well, none of you all understand what he's saying. And somebody would say, wait a minute, I do. I speak that language. I, I, in fact, I speak several languages. So Paul's point is that when a person speaks to God in tongues, he's not communicating horizontally with people. He's communicating vertically to God, which, of course, is what we call prayer. Uh, Paul goes on to say he speaks mysteries in the Spirit, mysteries because nobody understands them. So it seems clear to me, and there are other passages in 1 Corinthians 14 that confirm this, that the tongues of 1 Corinthians 14 is not of the same variety or species as what we find in Acts 2. That's why I titled the book The Language of Heaven. I believe it's a uniquely crafted a linguistic expression, it, it bears cognitive content. In other words, there's substance, there's meaning in what is being said, but it can only be understood by God or when God gives somebody the gift of interpretation, they can render it into the vernacular of the people. So, I, you know, I got a follow-up question to that because, and, and I'm going to speak on my experience here um, and not that my experience is scripture. I, I'm not uh, obviously, the scriptures speak to one thing, um, or are the authority. But uh, in my experience, I have spoken in tongues in a group of believers, and on more occasions than I can count, I've had people tell me what I've said in fluent Portuguese. Now, when they've told me what I've said, most oftentimes, it's prayers that I've made to God. So mm. it's prayer when I've spoken, uh, but someone actually understood what I was saying, and they didn't understand everything. They would understand bits and pieces of it if they, and it, it was people who understood Portuguese. I'd like to follow up with a similar question. Um, I, I've had a similar experience where we were in a prayer meeting with believers, um, and I was speaking in tongues, and a, and a young woman from Croatia heard me speaking not only her language, but in the accent of her language. So not just English, but the West Texas draw of English, right? So she hears me in her language and in her accent. Uh, and she tells me I was like worship music, you know, like how great is God, worthy, holy, that kind of stuff. And I was like, wow, that's that's fascinating. That's really cool. I, I take her at her word. Uh, but but when I hear this experience, you had mentioned in your book, uh, one theologian mentioned that the miracle wasn't in the speaking in a known language, but the hearing mm -hmm. in the known language. And that was um, uh, it, his name is is escaping me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Jay. 
Yeah, J. Robin Williams. Yeah, J. Robin Williams. That's how I was able to remember the name when I told this story recently. Is Robin Williams is a, is a memorable name. She had J yeah. in front of it. So, so uh, is that? Would you consider that a a reliable idea that the interpretation took place in the hearing, but not in the speaking? It, it seems like in your book you didn't really prefer that. First of all, uh, what you said that you experienced in speaking in tongues, and somebody said that's Croatian. Mm-hmm. I believe that still happens today. Yeah, I don't want people think that I'm denying that what happened in Acts 2 can't happen today. Mm-hmm. I believe it can. Uh, I've known several instances where it has. I've talked to people who would testify and verify that they heard that they spoke in tongues and somebody from uh, a foreign country was present said, I don't understand. You just spoke perfect Swahili or Mandarin or, mm-hmm. or Russian or whatever. So that does still happen today. I just don't think it's the primary or predominant expression of tongue speech that we have. So I will be clear on that. Excellent. Um, now, the, the, the question you raised is this. In Acts 2, uh, the people who were present in Jerusalem said, we hear them speaking in our own dialects. And so the argument has been made by some that the disciples weren't actually speaking those dialects. They were just speaking some form of incoherent um I hate to use the word, but I'm going to use it gibberish, that the Holy Spirit supernaturally empowered those individuals present to hear in their language what God was uttering through those individual disciples. The reason I I struggle with that is because that would mean that the primary spiritual gift at Pentecost wasn't given to believers, but to unbelievers. Sure. And I, I find that I find that a little bit difficult uh, to embrace. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think I really think that the the disciples were actually enabled by the Spirit to speak the dialects that they had never studied before, and people heard those dialects. So, for example, uh, to try to make sense of this for people who are listening, uh, let's say that I was present on the day of Pentecost, and I was standing next to Peter. And Peter suddenly started speaking in incoherent syllables. Um, and let's say that uh, there's a person uh, over here from uh, from Alexandria, Egypt. And that individual says, that's my language. I can, I can hear him speaking. Uh, what he's saying is, is in my head now being translated into my very own dialect. And yet I know that Peter wasn't speaking Egyptian, because I'm hearing him and it's just incoherent syllables and I know what Egyptian sounds like, but the person visiting on Pentecost would have heard it in Egyptian. So that's the argument that's being made. I can't rule it out entirely. I just don't think that's what described in Acts chapter two. I mean, and that makes sense as you, as you explained, you know, the spiritual gift of, of tongues and interpretation of tongues have been given to the church. Um, for their edification and their building up. And it sounds as if that argument would be that it's giving outside of the church, that the gift of interpretation was given to non-believers, people who have not yet uh, been baptized into the faith. Is that Was that kind of your... I'm sorry, repeat that again. I didn't quite hear the question. No, it's okay. It, it just sounds like, to clarify, uh, that the First Corinthians suggests that tongues and interpretation of tongues are given to believers, to the local church. Yes. And that's your primary concern with uh, the miracle being in the hearing of tongues and not in the speaking of tongues, is that it would mean that the unbelievers were the ones who received the spiritual gift. Uh, which, exactly. Which makes sense, which makes sense. Um, exactly. Uh, following along with that interpretation, we've got a, a question. And those of you who are watching, um, feel, yeah, feel free. Feel free to call in. 
in. Call in that number. Uh, 214-233-6292. I know there's a lot of you watching online live right now. Call that number. Ask your questions. We'd love to have you on uh, and ask your question directly to uh, Dr. Storms. Uh, One question that that a dear friend of mine and I have been working through is the gift of tongues seems to be this known language uh, throughout history. We don't have a whole lot of uh, record in church history of how tongues was practiced, but as far as I have been able to find, and I'm not going to pretend like I've done extensive, you know, doctoral level research on this. Uh, but but what I've tried to look up, I can find people speaking in languages that they don't know and people saying, hey, I heard him speak in a language I don't know. What I can't seem to find is uh, this private prayer language or and I know that 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 kind of verbiage offends some people. But you know what I mean? Uh, tongues used in prayer to God alone within the confines of your own home, whether that be a heavenly language, the tongues of angels, how many different groups call it different things. Um, Do we have a historical record of a private prayer language being used in the early church as far as you know? And I've got a follow-up question to that as well. Go ahead. In the the first four to 500 years, I I document this in my book, several instances in which uh, church fathers who were writing testify to the fact that people were speaking in tongues. Wow. Uh, now, whether or not they were talking about uh, other uh, known human languages otherwise unlearned by the speaker or a private prayer language, it's hard to differentiate. It's hard to know. They don't. They don't draw that explicit distinction. Mm-hmm. But after about five hundred, almost all spiritual gifts really subside. And I think the, lar- the reason for that largely is because of the ascendancy of the Roman Catholic Church and the, uh, kind of the restriction of ministry and spiritual gifts to the ordained uh, priest. Uh, ordinary believers were never given the opportunity to exercise their gifts. In fact, as you know, it wasn't until uh, Gutenberg in the 15th century that Christians even had the Bible in their own language. Mm-hmm. So they weren't able to read anything that we're talking about from 1 Corinthians it's not the kind of a, of an atmosphere in which you would expect people to flourish in the exercise of any of the gifts. So really for, um, again, for about a thousand years, there's very little evidence of, um, any of many of the gifts. Now there are some, certainly there are documented healings. We do have references uh, to tongues and prophecy and such among some of the splinter groups that had broken away from the Roman Catholic church. And then of course, in the post-Reformation period, it begins to explode. The Moravians were uh, very uh, fluent in uh, their exercise of tongues. It was present during the revivals of John Wesley. And then, of course, we move into the 18th and 19th centuries. It begins to proliferate. But, you know, this is one of the things that people need to remember about studying church history prior to uh, the time of the Reformation and the invention of movable printing. Um, We have very little record of what actually was happening in local churches. We don't know what was happening in small group gatherings or in private home prayer meetings across the world. Um, So it's important, you know, there's a principle, you hear this often, uh, but it's a very valid one. Um, The evidence, the absence of evidence is not necessarily the evidence of absence. So the absence of explicit written documented evidence of this kind of phenomenon Mm -hmm. is not itself evidence that that phenomenon was absent because we just simply don't have recorded documents that uh, give us much to go on in that regard. That's good. What was your follow-up question? Yeah, so I've seen on, I mean, 
there's a lot of teaching you hear out on this. And one of the things is um, there's a difference between a prayer language and the gift of tongues and how that is sort of divvied up and sparsed out or how the scriptures are sort of divvied up and sparsed out as to which one's being referred to is usually up to the person teaching it. Um, I haven't seen any sort of consistent hermeneutic in dissecting it in those two ways outside of maybe what you've said with the Acts chapter 2 versus the uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Um, and what I've also seen is is that teaching is used to justify people speaking in tongues in a public service uh, because it's their prayer language. They're not speaking to you, they're speaking to God, and therefore it's okay. Um, that that The thing Paul was addressing was the gift of tongues without interpretation. Uh, what would you say to those comments? Yeah, it's a, the distinction, uh, the first time I ran across this was, was in Jack Hayford's book. Yeah, exactly. Um, four square uh, denomination, a very godly man who wrote a book called The Beauty of Spiritual Language. And he argues for a distinction between what he calls the grace of tongues and the gift of tongues. And he said the gift of tongues is the gift as it is exercised in the public assembly accompanied by interpretation. And he said, not everybody has that gift. That is, uh, that is something that God does not necessarily bestow on all. But the grace of tongues is what he calls that private prayer language that every Christian can receive and exercise. And they would probably do so in, their, in the privacy of their own devotions or in a group where only believers are gathered. Um, I, don't, I don't find that distinction uh, explicitly found in Scripture. It seems to me that that is something that is, at least in my opinion, if I can humbly say this, that's read into or imposed on the text um, in order to justify the idea that God wants everybody to speak in tongues. So what, what Hayford and others would say is God wants every Christian to have the grace of tongues, a private prayer language that you can exercise in your own devotional life. Not everybody is given the gift of tongues to be utilized in the church accompanied by interpretation. I just don't see that distinction drawn in the New Testament. I address it in the book, um, but it seems to me like it's something we impose on the text from without. It doesn't seem to be something that emerges from within. So when Paul says, you know, uh, do all speak in tongues? Do all prophesy? You know, are all apostles? You know, and he goes to that list. And, and the, the natural answer to all those questions is, is no. The other group would say, but yeah, but that's because there's two different kinds of tongues here. Exactly. You would say, yeah. no, there's really nothing in the language or in history that would suggest there's two separate kinds of tongues. It's just... Uh, yeah. So, so the idea the the really this is kept alive, and you mentioned this in your book that the assemblies of God, who I think you mentioned in your book very graciously, say, you know, I'm not a part of that organization. That being said, godly men love the Lord, but they they keep alive the second blessing idea that um, the you need a secondary experience of the the baptism of the Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues, which is the doctrine of initial physical evidence. Maybe kind of tail that into what we just talk, talked about. How would you address those who believe in the initial physical evidence, maybe those who are wrestling with this and, and how to come to some conclusions? Yeah, just real quickly, uh, commenting on your first uh, observation. When Paul asked the rhetorical question, all do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not perform miracles, do they? Um, what what uh, Hayford and others are arguing is that Paul's there talking about the gift of tongues. He's mm -hmm. talking about the public manifestation 
of the gift. And he's saying, no, not everybody's supposed to do that. But when he talks in chapter 14 about, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, he has in view the grace of tongues, namely the, the use of the gift in private devotion. Now, it's important to point out that he's not saying there are two separate gifts of tongues mm. as if they're entirely different from one another. It's the same gift exercised in two separate or different contexts, one private, one public. And I'm simply saying, I don't think that that's what Paul is saying there. So I just want to be clear on, on that particular point. Um, as far as this, this issue of the second blessing, um, I happen to be of the conviction that spirit baptism occurs at the point of conversion for all Christians. And I don't think that there's any necessary physical evidence. In other words, I don't think that anything is going to happen in each and every case that's going to demonstrate or prove that you've been baptized in the spirit. Having said that, um, I think it's very important to point out that there are still multiple potential, multiple subsequent experiences with the spirit after your conversion. Uh, experiences in which you might receive a spiritual gift from the Lord. You might receive the gift of tongues. Uh, you might uh, be have this incredible boldness and clarity in sharing the gospel with non-Christians. Uh, you might, you know, like we read in the book of Acts that uh, Peter, having been filled with the Spirit, speaks rather boldly and prophetically or uh, pronounces a word of healing. I just wouldn't call those the baptism in the Spirit. Yeah. Now, again, it's important— I, I don't even like the, the debate o- over that of whether there is a second blessing. To me, the question is not what we call it, what label we put on it, but whether or not the experience is real. Yeah. In other words, does the New Testament actually justify our expectation and therefore our prayerful pursuit of multiple encounters, life-changing, empowering uh, experiences with the Holy Spirit, you know, years after our conversion? And I think the answer to that is yes. My Pentecostal friends might want to call that spirit baptism. Okay. I would call it being filled with the spirit or being anointed or empowered by the spirit. Um, But I don't think the New Testament justifies the idea that people who've been born again, but who have not been baptized by the spirit, subsequent to their conversion will have this incredible encounter and the initial, what they call the initial physical evidence of having received the Spirit is that they will speak in tongues. Mm-hmm. I don't find that justified in the book of Acts or anywhere else in the New Testament. That's a very bridge-building approach, what you said about um, the multiple experience. I was very, very careful and thoughtful, and I appreciate it. The way that, you, hey, we're not invalidating your experience that the Holy Spirit came right. upon you and you began to speak in tongues. We affirm that, praise God, that the Spirit came upon you and that happened, what we would call a baptism of the Spirit. And, and Jack Deere came on the show and he he delineated a difference between the Spirit filling and the baptism of the Spirit as if they were separate things uh, with the way that uh, uh, Luke uses that language, which is neither here nor there. But what we do, you and I will both agree on, and hopefully most of the audience, is the Spirit can come upon you and fill you to prophesy. The Holy Spirit can come upon you to speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit can come upon you to have a a great move of faith in your heart. Whatever that is, um, there are subsequent experiences with the Holy Spirit after salvation. Um, You know, we we would just affirm like Galatians, which said, did you do miracles by works of the law or hearing in faith? I heard the gospel, I believed the gospel, and miracles were a subsequent byproduct of my salvation. Um, Precisely. And my point is simply that I think that uh, the divisions 
and kind of the argumentative spirit that has emerged debating that point is unnecessary. That's beautiful. Uh, the only thing that's necessary is can we determine from the New Testament if there are legitimate post-conversion encounters with the Spirit in which he imparts gifts, power for witness, whatever else it may be, and the answer to that is yes. Absolutely. You want to call it you know you want to call it spirit baptism. I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm going to call it something else. That's again, very ecumenical. That's good. I, I'm not saying that that we should pay fast and loose with biblical terminology. I think we ought to be as faithful to biblical terminology as we can. But again, uh, the terminology is secondary. The question of the reality of the experience is what is primary. That's beautiful. Uh, and I think a couple of other verses you could throw on that to, to, to justify saying there are subsequent experiences or, or impartations and those kind of things is uh, what Romans one twelve I long to see you that I might impart some spiritual gifts. First uh, Timothy four fourteen and Second Timothy one six. On two occasions, Paul will tell Timothy to use gifts that he was given on separate occasions. One that was imparted by the elders of the church, another that was imparted by Paul himself. So mm-hmm. both of those sort of add to that. Um, uh, evidence that there is subsequent experience of impartation of gifts. Well, um, the, you quoted the Galatians 3.5 passage where Paul says, uh, where, where he describes God as the one, present tense, who is supplying the Holy Spirit to you mm-hmm. and working miracles in your midst. That's an ongoing reality. Ephesians 1, uh, Paul prays that, that God would grant to them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Philippians 1, Paul talks about the, the spirit being supplied to him. First uh, Thessalonians four, he talks about God who gives the spirit to you to enable you to resist uh, sexual temptation. So we have numerous indications that there are subsequent encounters, life-changing transformative mm-hmm. moments with the spirit of God. Um, I just would differ with my Pentecost- classical Pentecostal friends and not call those spirit baptism. And that's good. Again, it's very, very ecumenical that your approach to say, um, you know, we're using different terminology, but we believe, you know, you guys are brothers. We're not invalidating your experiences. We believe those things have happened. Um, I've I, never had anybody call me ecumenical before, so I think I'll take hey, that. Hey, praise God. There you go. Take it where you can get it. Um, the idea that uh, I, I know when I was in uh, Bible school, it wasn't seminary, it was, it was in Bible school, and uh, we had a guy come through and, and do some teachings on the multiple kinds of baptisms in the spirit you can get. <laughs> and and I, I, honest to God, this this affected our our class in the way that we would do ministry. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, a girl who's sitting on the back. I remember this experience very vividly where, hey, we're going to go out and do some evangelism. Do you want to come with us? And she says, no, I haven't received that baptism yet. And I was like, ¿Qué pasa? You know, and uh, uh, she said, you know, I'm waiting for the baptism of boldness so that when I'm baptized with boldness, I can go out and do evangelism. I haven't got that one yet. Yeah. So, so you know, No evangelism until then. No evangelism until yeah, then. Yeah. So she had had the experience, um, you know, where, where the Holy Spirit come upon her. She, she had even, uh, with our vernacular, very Assemblies of God-esque, uh, with the evidence of speaking in tongues, she's had multiple encounters with, uh, she believes in Christ to be her Savior. She's, she's experienced spiritual gifts on some level, but didn't believe that she had received the baptism to be an effective evangelist, right? So she was waiting, and that, this is, this is a clear evidence of where, where this is important that we need to talk about this, that, okay, we can talk about initial physical evidence, but if you have this idea that you won't be an effective Christian because you haven't had this experience, you could actually be handicapping the church where you could be telling them if they believe in Christ, 
that all the power uh, that that Christ has given the church, they have access to through faith. Um, so I right. think I think that's that's an important delineation for the sake of for the sake of the church. By the way, um, you asked a question a moment ago, and I, I don't think I answered it. Okay, uh, you said it's the primary purpose of tongues. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. In Acts chapter two, um, three things primarily, not exclusively, primarily. First Corinthians fourteen two: the one who prays in a t- uh, speaks in a tongue speaks to God. What is speaking to God? Prayer. Prayer. Right. Amen. All right. Second, uh, a little bit later in verses 15 and following to 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about singing in the spirit. So you can worship in tongues. You can sing in your in the, in the heavenly language you've been given. And then in verse 16, he talks about giving thanks in the spirit. So tongues is primarily prayer, praise, and the giving of thanks. Now, can it also be used, as we've just been talking about, in unique situations for evangelistic purposes to communicate across culture, across uh, uh, linguistic barriers? The answer is yes. Um, now, there may be other functions of tongues. I think there, uh, there probably are. For example, Ephesians chapter 6, this is a very controversial subject, where Paul, at the end of talking about the, the armor of God by, with which we clothe ourselves to uh, uh, do battle against Satan. He says, and at all times, pray in the spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, is he talking about speak, praying in tongues? I think that's included, but I think it's far more than that. Uh, it's, it's interesting, the same language that he talks about praying with my spirit, First Corinthians 14, he uses in Ephesians 6, does the same thing in the book of Jude. Jude 120, right? 120. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, I would say to people, it's important they hear this. If you don't have the gift of tongues, you can still pray in the Spirit. That's good. You can be empowered, sustained, energized, directed, guided by the Holy Spirit. But I think praying in tongues is also a form of praying in the Spirit. So mm-hmm. it's included in that language. And therefore, I say all that to make a point. I think Paul is telling us that a very effective tool or weapon in our battle with the enemy is the employment of our prayer language, praying in tongues for those who've been given the gift. For those who have it, don't worry about it. You just continue to pray in the power of the Spirit and make use of the other armor that that, that Paul lists there. That's excellent. So so when we say in the Spirit, um, when I look in the book of Galatians, for example, uh, he says, therefore, walk in the Spirit and do not gratify the lust of light. He talks about the walking in the Spirit in Galatians. As I read through Galatians, he says, you started in the Spirit. Are you trying to fulfill in the flesh? And when I'm reading in context, it looks like he's saying walking in the Spirit is walking in faith that you started in faith and you try to do works of the law and that's walking in the flesh. So if that's the correct logic that walking in the spirit is walking in faith and trusting Christ, would praying in the spirit be a, be a, a prayer that is in faith, trusting in Christ? Would that be praying in the spirit? Certainly. Excellent. Uh, I, in fact, I, I mean, we could sit here probably and think of a dozen different ways in which our, our, our daily walk, our sanctification, our prayer life, our worship life is in the spirit. And we would talk about it's done in faith. It's done consciously depending upon the spirit, listening for the spirit's voice, trusting that the spirit will will shape uh, what we're singing, what we're saying. So there's a variety of ways in which the spirit operates that might be subsumed under that phrase in the spirit. I'm just simply saying that I think that will include tongues for those who've been given the gift. I, I'm super thankful for that response because I've. You just hear all too often that if you don't 
speak in tongues. Well, that's not praying in the spirit. That really powerful prayer is if you pray in tongues versus everybody else's native prayers, which are just not so powerful. Yeah, they're, they're second rate prayers, which is a good way of bringing up our next question. We have a question from uh, uh, Sean Howard. I uh, came on Facebook and asked us this question. Is it more effective to pray in tongues or pray in your native language? Uh, what would you say? Would you, if, if you had an option to pray in the yeah. spirit or to pray in English? Which prayer is most heard and by God? I've got my own opinion on this that I'd like to yeah, throw let's, in. Let's arm wrestle. Let's see what happens. My guess is there are a variety of opinions on that. Yeah. And I'm let, let me speak out of, uh, first of all, from Scripture and then from experience. And Scripture takes precedent, obviously. I like the order. I don't see, I don't see any indication in Scripture that praying in the vernacular is less powerful than praying in a heavenly prayer language. Uh, prayer is prayer, uh, bringing, you know, it's to me, it's the intent of the heart. It's the conformity of our request with the revealed word of God. So uh, when Paul, um, you know, Paul talks about uh, his prayer life and he talks about he prayed in tongues more than all the Corinthians, but in but he did it in private rather than in public. I just don't see any evidence that would lead me to think that from a biblical point of view, uh, one form of prayer is more pleasing to God, is more powerful, more effective. So I, I want people to hear me. Those who do not have the gift of tongues, don't think that this means you're sub-Christian or a second-class citizen of the kingdom or you know, God's got you on a lower shelf and you've only got the junior Holy Spirit. We've got the first teamer. Uh, that's, just, that's, that's just wrong. It's very divisive. It's, it's not helpful at all. Now, on the other hand, um, let me just speak out of experience, and, and many will know what I'm talking about. All of us, when we're praying for another person, at some point reach the limit mm. of what we can say. We run out of words. I don't know what to say anymore. I think I've articulated everything that I possibly can. Um, when that happens with me, I'll launch into praying in tongues. Um, because, again, it's the Spirit praying through me, and I'm trusting that the Spirit is articulating very clearly to the Father uh, desires, longings, yearnings, principles, truths that I just simply could not do because of my finite limitations in my own language. So in that sense, perhaps tongues does enable us um, to pray with a bit more clarity and precision because it's not a, for, a, a, a form of prayer that is hindered by my own um, intellectual or cognitive or the abilities or the extent of my vocabulary in English. Mm. So I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. I do. Yeah, that makes sense. From a biblical point of view, I don't see any explicit text that says, oh, when you're praying in the spirit, uh, God's more inclined to hear you, more inclined to answer your prayer. But on the other hand, if when I pray in the spirit, it's not so much my own finite uh, efforts, but it's rather the Spirit of God through me articulating my request to the Father. It makes sense to suggest and perhaps believe that there's something uniquely powerful in that. But I want to be careful with that answer because no, that, that, that could easily be misinterpreted by people saying, oh, so God listens to you pray, Sam, more than he listens to me because you pray in tongues. I'm not saying <laughs> no, that. No. And there's there's a good follow-up question to that, but but we've only got 15 minutes left in the program. So if you're going to call, do it now or forever hold your peace. Uh, uh, we've got quite a few viewers on. Just give us a shout. If you if you have a question, we'd love to hear that. And if 
If you are calling and you're not getting through, message us there on on YouTube because we have the phone line open. So if it's not working, we need to know about that. So uh, maybe that's why we're having problems. Um, uh, did, did you have a follow up question? Uh, I did, and now I've lost. Oh, uh, there it is. So I've always said that it's not the language that you pray in that determines its efficacy or its power. It's the the position of your heart. Um, yes. So you know, Paul will say, "I hear uh, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." He hears the prayers from a from the proud from afar, but he is near to those who are humble in heart. Um, if anything, to me, that there's no explicit passage that says it's the language you pray in, but mm. rather there are explicit passages saying it's the posture, posture of your heart. That's good. Precisely. And I would say that that was really important. If tongues was a more efficient, powerful, fervent prayer than English, then Paul prayed better prayers than Christ. And that's dangerous. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think when, when Christ spent time with the Father to pray, uh, we've got no record of him speaking in tongues. So the second we say that, Paul's heard better than Christ. And I just think that's a slippery soap. Uh, I don't know that I want to play with that one, but it makes sense. The position of his heart, the, 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 his connection with his father, his being led by the spirit and how to pray. It makes perfect sense with what you're saying. There's kind of a, there's an end of yourself where you're like, man, I, and, and, and certainly it is a gift when you're going through a level of trial, when you're going through a uh, uh, pain loss to like, man, I, I, I want to pray, but I've got nothing to pray. I've got nothing in me. Tongues is a beautiful gift that Christ has given his body in a moment like that. So, um, uh, uh, so, so tell us, you know, you're working on this book. What was, did you have something when you're working on this book that just kind of stood out to you that you did not expect like that, that, yeah. that God was going to speak to you in the midst of working through this. Was there something about the gift of tongues that really just kind of popped out at you while you're working through this, this book? Well, that's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about that before. Um, oh my. Um, I'm not, I'm not real sure that I, that I can say yes to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe the reason for that is because I have been studying this issue for so many years yeah. and I've read so widely in it and have been praying in tongues myself um, pretty daily and regularly since about 19, uh, late 1990, early 1991. It's a lot of tongue so talk. much experience. I don't think I was surprised by anything. I, maybe the one thing that I, I was surprised by is when I did the historical research mm. to learn um, how uh, prevalent uh, the reality of tongues was in the early church. And by early church, I mean the patristic age up till about 450, 500 AD. So that was, uh, that was interesting. Also in, in looking at the medieval period. Um, and again, here we're dealing with people. You know, most people have heard of the mystics mm-hmm. and most of the mystics were part of the Roman Catholic church. Cause you have to remember during that period, everybody was a part there. There's only Roman Catholic church. <laughs> Of course, there was Eastern Orthodox. You got your heretics or your Roman Catholics. Yeah, <laughs> that's all you got. That's right. Or, or the Orth- Eastern Orthodox. You know, there you go. But um, uh, how among the medieval mystics, they almost to a person confessed to having a prayer language that they utilized on a regular basis. So, aside from that, um, I don't think there was anything that was really revelatory. Uh, I, I see what you did there. <laughs> um, but, uh, so yeah. I, it was um, it more than more, let me say this more than revelatory. It was confirmatory. Mm. What I mean by that, if I, my coining the new words, any such thing is confirmatory. It was confirming <laughs> um, my long held <laughs> convictions about the validity of this gift, 
the value of it was confirmed. And my belief in its uh, contemporary uh, exercise was confirmed over and over and over again. And I just kept seeing that the arguments that I used to employ when I was a cessationist uh, just simply don't hold up. They don't hold up to, to the biblical text. I, I'm maybe the maybe there's one thing that was revelatory, if I can say this. Um, and, and again, I'm saying this, and I hope and pray in humility and in complete um, respect and honor to my cessationist brothers. But I was really surprised yet again by how little they give attention to the actual text of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 14. Mm. Uh, just actually reading through Paul's argument and asking serious questions of the text. And it just seems to me that um, that some of those on the other side just don't aren't as attentive to the, to the actual statements of Paul uh, as they need to be. And that was a little bit of a, of a surprise, a little bit of a disappointment, honestly, to, yeah. to be true. And it sounds like that was an invitation, an open invitation to be hosted on Remnant Radio for an open debate for any cessation out there who wants to debate. Uh, 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 we, we come on the show and we'll have Dr. Storms uh, crush you. No, I'm just kidding. That'd be I'm, awesome. I'm totally joking. Not crush, but like having a conversation. But I kind of just put words in his mouth that he would be open to an open conversation. So if you're a cessationist and you want the conversation, I have his email. We'll see if he's interested. Um, I'm totally joking. Uh, Dr. Storms, you, you don't feel obligated I'm not joking. on any level. I would totally dig you coming on and having a conversation. Hey, I would love to do it. I've done that many, many times. Let's and do I, it. I thoroughly enjoy it. Excellent. Well, that, that's something that we would definitely host. So uh, if you're out there on the internet and you have someone you want to have a cessationist conversation, straight tweet them right now. Uh, Remnant Radio put it together. Um, anyway, Neither here nor there. Best book I've ever read on tongues, bar none. So, so good. Jack Deere book. said the same thing about your book. Yeah. So it's the best book he's ever read on tongues. It, it is. It was very, very uh, thorough, very careful, um, very honest. I think anyone, whether they be assemblies of God, whether they be, uh, you know, uh, a charismatic, whether they be word of faith, whether they be, you know, all the different uh, continuationist veins of Christian Christianity, I think could grab hold of that book and learn and glean uh, very, very well from it. I think when I say it's ecumenical, I only mean it in the sense that a diverse group of Christians that use the gift of tongues, I think, could jump on board and say, man, this is this is a helpful book. So I'd encourage anybody to go check it out, uh, read that book, um, you know, pick it up. It, it'd, it'd be a blessing to you and your church yeah, for sure. I, I could say a couple of things that might help people as they're thinking about it. Um, most most books on tongues, people ask me, why did I even write it? Mm-hmm. Is that there are a lot out there already? And the answer is there is, but it's usually one of two sorts. You either have books that are very anecdotal and all they do is they tell stories and they're very superficial. They don't dig into the text of scripture or you have books that are highly academic and they're basically written only for other scholars. And I tried to to avoid both of those extremes. Um, So the book was written um, in a way that I think any average adult educated Christian can can glean truth from it. It's not going to be over your head. Yeah it's not going to be uh, uh, shallow. So I, I interact with the literature. I interact with the text. And so it's a book that's designed to both communicate uh, experiential reality. I talk about my own journey in this and my own experience with it, as well as that of others. But I also ground that and root that in the text of scripture. And then the second thing about the book is the subtitle, Crucial Questions About Speaking in Tongues. What I did was I sat down, and when I first began working, 
and I tried to outline every single question that could ever be asked about this spiritual gift, about every single text, every counter argument, every practical issue. Um, and so I, I put it in the form of answering these questions. So honestly, somebody doesn't even have to read the whole book. You can actually cherry pick independent chapters that answer questions that are of special interest to you. So um, I, I think that might prove helpful to people if they're wondering about whether they want to get the book. Yeah, so I have someone asking, you know, hey, uh, where, where do we call in? The number is 214-233-6292. The, the, the actual phone number is in the comment section of the YouTube video. If you just scroll down underneath this video or if you're on your phone, hit that comment section, you can call in. We probably only have time for one more call. So, uh, you know, take your time, do that. I'd like to uh, quickly show the video from the Convergence Conference that we promoted there at the beginning uh, for those who are watching. So if you call in, We'll take your question, but it'll be right after this quick video. So you guys enjoy this lovely Convergence Conference footage. Hey folks, Sam Storms, lead pastor here at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And I am so excited to be here to announce to you Convergence 2019. Our theme this year is the God who heals. So we're gonna focus entirely during this conference on the subject of healing. We're going to look at both physical and emotional and spiritual healing. We're going to look at healing in the Old Testament, healing in the ministry of Jesus. What is the relationship between faith and healing? Why is it that God doesn't always heal? And and how should we develop a theology of suffering in the light of that? In addition to myself, returning again this year are Andrew Wilson from England, Matt Chandler, lead pastor at the Village Church, Dr. Jack Deere, and we have two new speakers joining us this year. Dr. Michael Brown. Michael has written probably a couple of dozen books focusing on the ministry of the Spirit. In fact, I believe the best book ever written on healing in the Old Testament was written by Michael. It's called Israel's Divine Healer. And I'm especially excited to announce that joining us this year is Christine Kane. Christine is going to speak not only in the subject of physical healing, but about her own personal journey out of shame and the emotional healing that she has experienced after many years of abuse. There will be extended times of prayer ministry, specifically for healing, and also of worship, led by the Bridgeway Music Team. So let me encourage you to go to convergenceconference.org. Register quickly, and I look forward to seeing you in September of 2019 at our conference. Okay, so we're on the line with Jacob. Jacob, how are you, sir? Good. Excellent. Hey, man, I heard that you had a question. What is your question for Dr. Storms? Uh, my question is in reference to Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 through 32. And I've heard a lot of cessationists say, like, oh, speaking in tongues is of the devil. And so Jesus referenced in that uh, text there to the Pharisees that contributing something that is a work of the Holy Spirit mm to the devil is likened to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I just wanted to hear your take on that. Excellent. So, uh, Dr. Storms, I know you can't hear that video. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang up on the phone here. Uh, Jacob, very good question. We will answer to it to the best of our ability. Thanks for calling in, man. Uh, so, Dr. Storms, just to repeat it to you so that you can hear it, uh, the question was in in the Matthew, you get the text? 12, uh, 28 20. through 31. Yeah, it talks about uh, any spiritual or any work of the Spirit that is attributed to Satan 
um, is like the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's an unforgivable sin. For those who are cessationists who are looking at the gifts of tongues uh, as honestly, faithfully looking at it and saying, I've studied this as best as I can, and as far as I can tell, the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. So this gift that you're practicing is clearly demonic. Are those people in danger of committing the unforgivable sin? Uh, no, I do not believe they are. Um, I believe the uh, what Jesus is talking about there is a sin can, that can be committed only by non-Christians. Mm. In other words, he's talking to religious leaders who had witnessed in in front of their eyes an unmistakable supernatural miracle. Jesus had healed this little boy who was deaf and mute. He had cast a demon out. They were confronted with the unmistakable evidence of supernatural power. And then in the face of that, were so hardened in their hearts, they attributed it to the devil. So... I don't think that uh, the unpardonable sin is a single inadvertent slip of the tongue or mistake. It's the result of a lifelong, hard-hearted repudiation of Jesus that has reached the point that you declare that the works that he's doing, he's doing by the power of Satan. You're ta- when, when, when fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, disagree theologically, um, and they might draw the conclusion, I think it's an errant conclusion, a wrong conclusion, that speaking in tongues today is somehow demonically energized. I think they're profoundly mistaken and wrong in that. But I don't think that they are speaking that out of malicious intent or out of a desire to reject Jesus as Messiah. Amen. Uh, that's what was going on in Matthew 12 with those religious leaders. So I know that there have been some in the charismatic world said, well, you cessationists are Uh, You're quenching the spirit and you're committing blasphemy of the spirit. You better watch out. You're not going to be forgiven now or in the age to come. That's not what is going on there. As as big of a mistake as it is on the part of the cessationist, it's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's good. Uh, Hey, praise God for that. Hey, thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Storms. We will definitely have you on. If you'd you'd have us, we'd love to have you on for another episode. For those of you who are watching, man, uh, check out uh, the the, the page. Leave us a like if this video has been impactful for you. Uh, Share the video if you would. There's a a little subscribe button there that looks like a little bell. Hit the subscribe button and you ring the bell, as it were, and you'll get notifications when we go live in the future. Any closing thoughts, man? Just this. Uh, we are so proud of some of the content that we've been developing oh, over the last few months, the last year and a half for Josh. Uh, we would love for you guys to share this for us. Share it with your friends on Facebook and on uh, the Twitter sphere and Instagram and YouTube. Uh, help us get the word out there about what we're trying to do and, and how we're, I mean, in a lot of ways, we're sort of uniting the body of Christ to talk about some of the central and, and even, you know, outside issues within the faith. So we want to get this out there and get the word out there. So, yeah, so thank we, you for those of you who are viewing and a part of it. Absolutely. You guys tune in every single Monday night, 8.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, and you can have uh, different videos just like this. We've interviewed Jack Deere. We've interviewed Wayne Grude, and we interviewed Craig Keener, Dr. Michael Brown, Matt Chandler, all those videos that I just mentioned are linked up in the description of this video. So if you're done watching it and you're like, man, what else content did these guys create? You can see it right there in the bottom of the video. So again, Dr. Storms, thank you so much for coming on. Man, it was a blessing to have you. You bet. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, be blessed. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time.
want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.